John 15, you got it? We are in our series, I believe this is our fourth week in Living in the Vine. Jesus has been inviting the disciples to have deep fellowship with him so that they could be fruitful. Is using as a backdrop a vine dresser tending to a vineyard. And the topic is intimacy, it's fellowship, it's closeness with God. And Jesus leaves little doubt as to what the topic is when he uses the word abide uh, 10 times in the first 11 verses. The topic is not about who he's saving from hell and who he's not. Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's not talking to the general public. He has declared them forgiven in this passage. And he says, you are in me. And this is a designation of children of God who are enjoying the benefits of of being linked with Christ. So again, Jesus is talking about the depth of fellowship, not salvation in John 15. Look at it this way. The church is called the bride of Christ, right? In, In Ephesians, the church is the bride of Christ. Consider John 15 as marital counseling between the husband and the bride. That's really what's going on. It's an invitation for greater influence or or, or intimacy between the bride and her husband, Christ. Now, marriage counselors are typically going to point people towards greater intimacy, closeness, and not creating doubts about their marriage. Can you imagine a marriage counselor asking the couple, do you think you guys are really married? Let me recount the ways in which we can split apart this relationship that you have, all right? Can you prove to me you're married with a marriage license? Actually, that's not enough. Show me some other ways that you can prove that you're married. I mean, you think that guy or woman would be nuts, all right? You'd want a refund if they were approaching marriage counseling that way. The fact is here is that Jesus is drawing his disciples closer in relationship because they are going to need it with what is up ahead. Jesus is going to die within a few hours of this talk that he's giving to the disciples in John 15. In addition, they're going to plant other churches, going to be dispersed throughout, and many of them are going to meet violent deaths. So they're going to need help, they're going to need confidence, they're going to need direction about this relationship that they have with Jesus. So let's all stand as we look at John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Father, I pray that we might continue 
to understand better what it means to abide, and we can experience that abiding relationship more consistently. Make it so for all of us. For those that don't know you at all, may today be their day of salvation. For those that know you and maybe feel afar off, maybe they've been ticked at you, maybe they haven't been to church in a long time, may they know that you care about them, that you love them, that we aren't taking some inventory at the door to see who's accepted and who's not, but that you love that people are seeking you. May they know that you welcome them with open arms, and so do we. And may you help them grow in their walk with you, help them to see your love. May it draw them to you. And so we acknowledge that you are giving us a great opportunity to respond honestly to what your spirit is saying to us. And we acknowledge we don't understand at all. There are a lot of things we don't get. We try our best to take a look at your word and to, and, and to make it clear and to cut it right. But Lord, ultimately what we want to do is, is grow in our relationship with you and and, and I pray that you'll, you'll accomplish that, even in the midst of all of our mistakes and all our foibles and all the problems, you'll do your work. And so we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit right now to speak to each and every heart and to transform us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Notice the parallel. We abide in Christ when we abide in his word. We abide in Christ when we abide in his word. Does this mean that I have to give special attention to the King James Version where it has the red letter edition and it's only the words of Christ? Is that what is being said here by Jesus? Just make sure you pay attention to my words. Is that what he means? No, I think what he means is for us to look at the totality of Scripture. What, By the way, what did Jesus have in his hands during this time of his time on earth? All that he would have had were the Old Testament Scriptures, right? And he said in John 10.35 that the Scripture cannot be broken, and he called the Old Testament scripture in Matthew 15.3 the commandment of God. The commandment of God. And then he said in Matthew 5.18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth have passed away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Apparently Christ had a pretty high view of the Old Testament. And in Matthew 22.31, he spoke of the section of the Old Testament talking about resurrection, and he said, have you not read what was said to you by God? In other words, God was speaking in the Old Testament. And Jesus confirmed different accounts of the Old Testament when he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife, uh, Cain killing Abel, manna given in the wilderness. One cannot be intellectually honest and say they take Jesus at his word and then reject the Old Testament. You can't do it. Jesus saw the Old Testament as being the word of God and he had total trust in it. The phrase word of God means more than just the printed words in this book. 
fact, when the Bible speaks of the Word of God, it means, a, a, in a broad sense, His expressions to us, the way that God speaks to us, and He does it in a variety of ways. Psalm 19 speaks of creation speaking to us about the glory of God. We know that God is big and vast by looking at creation. We know that He's, he, he's intricate and smart when we look at the design of the universe, so he speaks to us through creation. In Hebrews 1.1, it tells us that he speaks to us through the Old Testament prophets. And in John 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's almost as if Christ oversaw all of these expressions. In fact, it, it, doesn't it say in Colossians 1 that he created the world? Christ himself is the, this perfect expression overseeing all these expressions of the word of God. In other words, God is not silent. And all these are ways that God communicates something about himself to humankind. There's another passage later in the epistles that speak of Christ's words. Colossians 3.16 says we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, when Paul penned those words, what scriptures did they have for them? What record did they have but the Old Testament? That's what was in their hands. What I want you to see is that when we speak of the word of Christ, we can legitimately say we are talking about the totality of the Bible, Old and New Testament. Christ was the centerpiece and continues to be the centerpiece of the Word of God. The Old Testament is a picture of Christ in the law, in the sacrificial system. It looked for something better that would be fulfilled in Christ. That's what the Old Testament is about. It also prophesied of the Christ to come. The Gospels are a record of Christ's time on earth, and the epistles are an extension of Christ's teaching from the apostles. The phrase, word of the Lord, or word of God, are used over 300 times in the Bible. These are authoritative statements of God's thoughts accurately recorded in the Bible. God communicating with us. Now, many other religious teachers, religions, make similar claims, right? The Koran... God's Word. Book of Mormon, God's Word. Pseudepigrapha, God's Word. All these other ways in which people try to say that they have an, you know, either adding to the Word of God or different from the Bible. But listen, the Bible stands by itself in its unity. It corresponds with history and even archaeology, something none of those other books can do. It has fulfilled prophecy it's focused upon Christ who entered space and time on this earth. We can have the fullest confidence that what we hold in our hands is an accurate representation of what was originally written centuries ago. How do we know that? Because of the bibliographical evidence that takes this Bible, compares it with the earliest manuscripts, and we know it's accurate. Christ said this, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You want to give preeminence to the word of God? There it is. 
Ultimately, what we need is God's direction in our lives. In fact, before the New Testament was even penned, did you know that Christ gave his stamp of approval on the New Testament before it was even written? He spoke of the Holy Spirit bringing to the disciples, get this, in John 14, 26, remembrance of all that I have said to you. This covers the four Gospels that talk about the, the, the teachings of Christ, an account of the life of Christ. And in the same verse, it says that the Holy Spirit would teach you all things. And that covers the epistles that are considered the teaching books that elaborate on the great truths of our relationship with God. And then in John 16, 13, Christ assures the disciples that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth and would declare to them the things, check this out, the things that are to come. And that covers the prophetic passages of Revelation. So what we have is an endorsement of the entire New Testament by the person of Christ before the New Testament was even written. And incredibly, Christ has put his stamp on the Old and New Testaments as an expression of God's word. So when Christ said he wanted his words to abide in the disciples, I think it's safe to say we can include the Old and New Testaments are to be a regular part of our lives. Whether it's in teaching, personal study, reading, meditation, discussion, the word of God is to permeate our lives. For what purpose? Verse 7 says it's to enhance our communication with God. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It increases our prayer life. It feeds our prayer life. His words align with our thoughts. And when we pray consistent with his will, God answers. So listening to God is the first order of business when we think about praying. We begin to see God responding to our requests. And what does this do? This glorifies God as it produces fruit. So the word, word of God is to condition and to control our mind so that our prayers conform to the Father's will. Listen, the word of God not only helps us form our prayers, it helps form our worship and it, it fuels our thanksgiving. We read this in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving and your hearts to God. Listen, there is no such thing as a person who is close to Christ and rejects the word of God in any form or fashion. There is no such thing as a person who is in close fellowship with God and rejects the word of God in any form or fashion. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. My friends, it couldn't be any simpler. You want to grow in Christ? Then you have to learn how to cultivate our fellowship with him. Why? Verse 8 tells us why. 
It says in verse 8, next slide, By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. See, the fruit of the work of God is the personal transformation that God executes in our lives. It's God working through us to use our time, treasure, and talent for the kingdom. Why does this give God glory? Because it is God's work who uses God's word to create godly people. We worship, we obey, we fellowship. These are all expressions of God's work using God's word to produce godliness. And these characteristics, Jesus says, these are typical of people who follow me, typical of my disciples. They listen. They do. They obey. They love as they bring in the word of God. Tolstoy said, everybody thinks of changing humanity and nobody thinks of changing himself. My friends, transformation only happens through relationship and intimacy with Christ. We cannot change ourselves by the force of our will, listen, or by outward religious acts or outward affiliation to some religious setting, including this one. It's not going to bring about change. This is what the Bible says. If with Christ you died to the elemental spiritual of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? In other words, a bunch of rules. Don't handle, do not touch, do not, um, do not taste. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. That reminds me of Janet and I. When we first moved to town in 1984, we attended a church here in town. It no longer exists. You'll know why after I tell you this. In the Sunday school class that the pastor was teaching... He talked about the evils of roller skating. I'm not making it up. Roller skating. Now, I can't remember when it was I told Janet, whether it was in the car or there in the class, I said, we are never coming back here again. All right? That was it. I mean, seriously. But people think, if I just wash up the outside, if I just do what's right about the outside, then I'm going to be holy. Then we do everything God wants me to do. Just doesn't quite work that way. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't mean you don't address external behavior. Of course you do. But that alone does not bring transformation. Our number one job in the Christian life is to experience a life of intimacy with God. Richard Foster, in his classic book, Celebration of Discipline, if you don't have it, get it and read it. Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. He says this, the needed change within us is God's work, not ours. The demand is for an inside job, and only God can work from the inside. 
We cannot attain or earn this righteousness of the kingdom of God. It is a grace that is given. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to, and we can include in that Bible study prayer, the disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. Human beings seem to have a perpetual tendency to have somebody else talk to God for them. This is so true. Listen to this. We are content to have the message secondhand. One of Israel's fatal mistakes was their insistence upon having a human king rather than resting in the theocratic rule of God over them. Isn't this true? We think, boy, I got to have so-and-so. Got to have them involved in my life in order to have my connection with God. Don't know what I'd do without so-and-so. No. He says, we can detect a note of sadness in the word of the Lord. They have rejected me from being king over them. The history of religion is a story of an almost desperate scramble to have a king, a mediator, a priest, a pastor, a go-between. And in this way, we do not need to go to God ourselves. Such an approach saves us from the need to change, for to be in the presence of God is to change. We do not need to observe Western culture very closely to realize that it is captivated by the religion of the mediator. Those are convicting words. And we put people up on a pedestal. And we think, you know, they're the cat's meow and i got to have that. No, you don't. You know, I think when it comes to Bible study, when it comes to prayer, I speak to many Christians who have almost given up on the prospect because they have tried and they feel like they haven't gotten anywhere. Maybe God hasn't answered my prayers. Or maybe Bible say it's just boring. I've heard this. And it's, it's discouraging and it's even intimidating. You read a passage you don't understand and you just say to yourself, what's the use? I won't have you lift up hands, but I know every one of us could probably say that in a season of our life at one time or another. You say, Kevin, I believe you go through that every Sunday when you give us sermons. You don't understand, all right? Listen, think of it this way. If that's where we're at, what does that do to our fellowship with God? I mean, if we're cutting off communication, what does that do to our fellowship? It's like expecting, you know, your marriage to grow when you've been going through a silent treatment with one another for a week and you're expecting intimacy to grow. It just doesn't happen that way, right? Even in human relationships, we fail and learn from our failures and we learn to continue to relate, to communicate so that we can have healthy relationships, right? Can we expect any less from God? See, I would suggest in our relationship with God in our fellowship that uh, we don't always feel like reading the Bible. We don't always feel like praying. But there's nothing that we are going to be prolific at or good at that does not include practice, failure, and perseverance. How many of us have experienced plenty of failure when it comes to getting to know God? Of course we have. But there's got to be perseverance and practice at it. There's nothing you can be good at without practice, failure, and perseverance. 
Our Bible study, our, our Bible reading, and prayer muscles, listen, they have to be limbered up. And once meaningful communication is experienced, we learn to depend upon God's grace as we practice these disciplines. So what I wanted to do today is finish up by giving you some practical suggestions, tools to help us enhance our fellowship with God. For instance, for reading the Bible, what I'd suggest is to define what your goal is, to pick a method, pick a plan, okay? For instance, you can read the Bible in a year. You could do that. You could study a book of the Bible, maybe take several months to just study a book or a particular passage. You could do a word study for the Bible, or you could maybe do a small devotional when reading the Bible. All of these are approaches that can be valued and, uh, and effective. And I simply want you to see that there are different ways to approach it. For instance, in reading the Bible in a year, there are plenty of reading plans available, but for my money, let me suggest what you not do. You not start in Genesis and try to read through the whole Bible, starting in Genesis all the way to Revelation. You say, well, why not? Because when you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, man, you are going to take a nosedive. That's why. Okay? Admit it. We've done it how many times? You know, we're all just so excited about reading the Bible, and you get to Deuteronomy, it's like, oh, my land. (sighs) All right? This is what I'd suggest. There are different reading plans, okay, that take several sections of the Bible, and you read those at once. Okay, for instance, in my Bible reading plan, this would just be a suggestion, I would read like from Genesis, a chapter or two, from the Psalms, a chapter or two, the Gospels, a chapter or two, and maybe, you know, like Ephesians or Colossians, a chapter or two. And I go through the whole Bible, it kind of breaks it up in those four sections, and by the end of the year, I'm completely done. But it's almost like a movie where you got, you know, different plot lines going along and it keeps your interest. It's the same way in reading the Bible in those different sections. Listen, the Bible is not written in a chronological way anyway, so don't fret it, all right? And this is a tremendous tool to keep your interest, all right? There are a lot of different Bible plans that you can use that will do that, that'll start in different sections. If you have that uh, version Bible app, you can use that and you can just choose from a number of different plans that are available. One of the things I do when I read through the Bible like that is I always have my journal available and I write down any notes, phrases I don't understand, words that I don't get, um, insights, okay? And that keeps my interest and I always look forward to digging in. Now, because I do what I do for a living, I'm digging in every week anyway, right? So when you study a book, uh, if, if that's your preferred method, what I would suggest, you could take a book like Colossians, Ephesians, whatever, and read through the book several times. Now, if you're in the book of Luke or John, it might not be as easy to do that, but you could at least bite off different sections and read it several times where you begin to see patterns and ideas begin to kind of bubble to the surface, and you make note of that, all right? 
Write down phrases you don't understand, words that you don't get. And two things I would recommend that you get if you don't have them already. A Bible dictionary, Unger's Bible dictionary is a good one to get. And just a simple one-volume commentary of the Bible. The Bible knowledge commentary is a great place to start. Those two tools will help you. Now, by the way, you can find all this stuff online for free. All right? So you don't even have to buy the books. You can find that online, and it's just readily accessible. So when you come up on a word you don't understand, get in your Bible dictionary. There it is. Or you come up on maybe a verse you don't understand, uh, it can help by having a commentary in your Bible. Now listen, just understand this. A commentary is only one guy's view of what it is. So don't take that for the gospel. All right? It's just one guy's, one teacher's view of that. So, you know, that's not, you know, inerrant and infallible, but it's just trying to explain a passage, right? But all those tools, by the way, I'm making sure I'm in the right zone, all right? I'm at least in the neighborhood. If I come up with some kind of interpretation that nobody has come up with, I'm probably thinking, you know what, Short, you better get back on the field, all right? Uh, so it, do, it does kind of help you to at least uh, test, your, uh, test your views. When you, when you study like this and you read the Bible, you know how in, uh, Paul talks about in Corinthians that he doesn't want them all to be infants, when they, when they study the word. I heard somebody uh, say to me that what that means is food that's already been chewed, ABC. And it's just like an infant who suckles at its mother's breast. It's food that's already been processed, giving them milk, okay? And what we want is meat that we can eat on our own, where I can get the concepts, I can read the Bible on my own and learn to grow, learn to gather these concepts. And what God does, man, he begins to encourage you. You begin to get confidence in your reading of the Bible. The Holy Spirit speaks to you, and there is nothing more exciting on the earth than to have God speak to you personally, right? I mean, that is what it is all about. And to do that and to read and to have God, I get so much more excited in my study than I do delivering it here to you. I don't get too motivated by preaching. I get I'm geeky this way. I get excited by studying. It's like writing a term paper every week. I look forward to that. I really do. Because I throw away nine-tenths of the things I'm reading and that I have found to try to call it all down to just, you know, what you get on a Sunday morning. But, man, what God does, I'm like, whoa, that is really cool. And so, you, you know, you have, to, you have to pare it down. And that, to me, is where the Holy Spirit, he works just as much in the study as he does in preaching, right? And he's going to do that same for you. He's going to work as you, as you dig into the word, as you're just allowing the Holy Spirit. And I, I pray this all the time, Lord, speak to my own heart. I don't want to miss something. It's not just for somebody else. This is for me, right? And so, you know, you have your pad and pencil out and you're writing down what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. And that is transformation. Uh, now, for prayer, it's pretty simple. All right, you could follow a simple acrostic. This is not new. I didn't invent this. You probably have heard this before anyway. It's ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. All right? So if you don't have a regular prayer time, try using this acrostic as you pray. Adoration is simply acknowledging who God is, praying back to him, thanking him for who he is. I'll, you could take the Psalms, for instance, and where it, where it extols the virtues of God. You pray that back to God. 
It's a wonderful thing to pray scripture back to God. At least you know you're on target, right? And so you could also maybe remember how God has intervened through the pages of scripture or through recent history, and you're, you're adoring God. Then that moves you to confession. When you see how big, holy, awesome God is, uh, then God moves you to confession, and that usually takes me a couple hours as I confess my sin each and every day, right? But seriously, and I, I've told you this before, like if I'm in a conflict whether it's a uh, you know, marital issue or conflict with somebody else or something. You know, I, will, I will go to my journal. I'll ask God to you know, speak to my own heart. It's amazing what God does. Listen, if you'll just sit still, if you'll just listen and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart on those issues, and God begins to show you, you know what? You really were, you know, selfish here, or you had some pride in this situation, short, or whatever it is. And this brings freedom because you can take responsibility for your own stuff, and you can restore relationships. It brings freedom. It brings joy. There's there's joy to the confession and the repentance, all right? And so don't just say, you know, Lord, you know, I confess all my sin. Be specific. You know, I'll acknowledge, Lord, I was, I was prideful in that situation. I was arrogant in that situation. I was selfish in that situation. And then I can begin to experience the forgiveness of God and his grace as I seek his forgiveness and restore that fellowship not only with God, but with other people as well. So there's adoration, there's confession, and then there's thanksgiving. And I try to keep a, a record of God answering prayer. I look at how God has blessed my own life, uh, whether it's with family or, or things in ministry or uh, whatever it is. And I begin to uh, just recount how God is blessed. And I, and I thank you for that. You could start with your own salvation. Good place to start. Thanking God for the relationship that we have with him. And then there's supplication. And that's where I give God specific requests. I have a, a printout of, of people, whether it's, you know, it, it's the elders, it's their wives, it's the ministry leaders and their wives, uh, the men I disciple, their wives, it's, it's uh, my family, grandkids, other people that God brings to mind. And you begin to, you begin to jot down requests, you begin to pray, you see God answering those prayers. You know what it does? It builds your faith. It builds your confidence as you see God working and answering prayers like, whoa, look at what God did here. Man, let's keep this up. I love being on this gravy train. It is really fun when you see God answering those prayers. And things that have kind of catapulted these times are, for instance, uh, prayer retreats. I've done several of those where you get together with some other people. I've done a four-day one. That was long or maybe just an overnight. You do nothing but just pray. No agenda, and just ask God to speak to your heart. Boy, you want to do something that would transform your family? Get all your family together and your kids. Say, all right, from six to nine, we're going to do nothing but pray. And they're going to look at you like you are nuts. But listen, no agenda. You're just asking God to speak to your family and just pray with whatever comes on your heart. You could start singing. You start confessing. Try that. Try that. Here's another thing that might catapult, is fasting. You say, well, I've never done that. Well, that's why I'm giving it to you, so you can start it, all right? Fasting. Stay away from food for a period of time. A day, two days, three or four days, whatever. You can take water. Stay away from food. You know what happens then? 
When you have the Im, a, a hunger pang, an impulse to eat, you're saying no to that. It reminds you to look to the Lord and to pray. There's something fascinating, too, that I find when it comes to learning about fasting, learning about these pangs, these desires that come for food. I think there's somehow a connection, especially for men, when it comes to lust or sexual passions, because you learn here quickly that the passions do not have to rule you, that you can say no to the passion, right? You're saying no to the food, and you're learning, you know what? I'm actually going to make it. I'm actually okay. And, 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 and you, you learn to go to the Lord in the midst of that desire, and God meets you there. And it's the same whenever a thought enters your brain, you begin to immediately respond to the Lord instead of camping on that thought. And you learn you do not have to fall prey to every passion. Do you want to abide in Christ and increase your intimacy with God? Then, my friends, the Holy Spirit wants you to Dig into the word of God. He wants to guide you. He wants to move your heart to pray, to worship, to give thanks, to enjoy that closeness, that fellowship with God. Let's pray.